Okay, so today we are reading The Story of My Life by Helen Keller. We are on page 25, the bottom half of the page. It starts with again. Okay, here we go. Again, it was the growth of a plant that furnished the text for a lesson. We bought a lily and set it in a sunny window. Very soon, the green pointed buds showed signs of opening. The slender finger-like leaves on the outside opened slowly, reluctant, I thought, to reveal the loveliness they hid. Once having made a start, however, the opening process went on rapidly, but in order and systemically. There was always one bud larger and more beautiful than the rest, which pushed her outer covering back with more pomp, as if the beauty in soft, silky robes knew she was the Lily Queen, by right divine, while her more timid sisters doffed their green hoods shyly until the whole plant was one nodding bow of loveliness and fragrance. Once there were eleven tadpoles in a glass globe set in window full of plants. I remember the eagerness with which I made discoveries about them. It was great fun to pl plunge my hand into the bowl and feel the tadpoles frisk about and to let them slip and slide between each finger. One day, a more ambitious fellow leaped beyond the edge of the bowl and fell on the floor, where I found him, to all appearance, more dead than alive. The only sign of life was a slight wriggling of his tail, but no sooner had he returned to his element than he darted to the bottom, swimming round and round in joyous activity. He had made his leap. He had seen the great world and was content to stay in his pretty glass house under the big fuchsia tree, until he attained the dignity of froghood. Then he went to live in the leafy pool at the end of the garden, where he made the summer nights musical with his quaint love song. Thus I learned from life itself. At the beginning I was only a little mass of possibilities. It was my teacher who unfolded and developed them. When she came, everything about me breathed of love and joy and was full of meaning. She has never since let pass an opportunity to point out the beauty that is in everything, nor has she ceased trying in thought and action to an example to make my life sweet and useful. It was my teacher's genius, her quick empathy, her, her loving tact which made the first years of my education so beautiful. It was because she seized the right moment to impart knowledge that made it so pleasant and acceptable to me. She realized that a child's mind is like a shallow brook, which ripples and dances merrily over the stony course of its education, and reflects here a flower, there a bush, yonder a fleecy cloud, and she attempted to guide my mind on its own way, knowing that like a brook it should be fed by mountain streams and hidden springs until it broadened out into a deep river, capable of reflecting its placid surface, billowy hills, the luminous shadows of trees, and the blue heavens as well as the sweet face of a little flower. Any teacher can take a child to the classroom, but not every teacher can make them learn. He will not work joyously unless he feels that the liberty is his. Whether he is busy or at rest, he must feel the flush of victory and the heart-sinking disappointment before he takes with a will the tasks distasteful to him and resolves to dance his way bravely through a dull routine of textbooks. My teacher is so near to me that I scarcely think of myself apart from her. How much of my delight in all beautiful things innate, and how much is due to her influence, I can never tell. I feel that her being is inseparable from my own, and that the foot 
steps of my life are in hers. All the best of me belongs to her. There is not a talent, an inspiration, or a joy in me that has not been awakened by her loving touch. That's the end of chapter 7. We are reading The Story of My Life by Helen Keller. Beginning chapter 8, starts on page 27. Chapter 8. The first Christmas after Miss Sullivan came to Tuscumbia was a great event. Everyone in the family prepared surprises for me. But what pleased me most, Miss Sullivan and I prepared surprises for everybody else. The mystery that surrounded the gifts was my greatest delight and amusement. My friends did all they could to excite my curiosity. By hints and half-spelled sentences which they pretended to break off, just in the nick of time. Miss Sullivan and I kept up the guessing game, which taught me more about the use of language than any set of lessons could have done. Every evening, seated round a glowing wood fire, we played our guessing game, which grew more and more exciting as Christmas approached. On Christmas Eve, the Tuscumbia school children had their tree, to which they invited me. In the center of the school room stood a beautiful tree ablaze and shimmering in the soft lights, its branches loaded with strange, wonderful fruit. It was a moment of supreme happiness. I danced and capered round the tree in ecstasy. When I had learned that there was a gift for each child, I was delighted, and the kind people who had prepared the tree permitted me to hand the presents to the children. In the pleasure of doing this, I did not stop to look at my own gifts, but when I was ready for them, my impatience for the real Christmas to begin almost got beyond control. I knew the gifts I already had were not those of which friends had thrown out such tantalizing hints, and my teacher said the presents I was to have would be even nicer than these. I was persuaded, however, to content myself with the gifts from the tree, and leave the others till morning. That night, after I had hung my stocking, I lie awake a long time, pretending to be asleep, and kept alert to see what Santa Claus would do when he came. At last I fall asleep with a new doll and a white bear in my arms. Next morning, when I, my, next morning it was I who walked Wake the whole family with my first Merry Christmas. I found surprises not in, only in the stocking, but on the table, on all the chairs, at the door, at the very window sill. Indeed, I could hardly walk without stumbling on a bit of Christmas wrapped in a tissue paper. But when my teacher presented me with a can canary, my cup of happiness overflowed. Little Tim was so tame that he would hop on my finger and eat candied cherries out of my hand. Miss Sullivan taught me to take care of my new pet. Each morning after breakfast, I prepared his bath, made his cage clean and sweet, filled his cup with fresh seed and water from the well house, and hung a spray of chickweed on his swing. One morning, I left the cage on the window seat while I went to fetch water for his bath. When I returned, I felt a big cat brush past me as I opened the door. At first, I did not realize what had happened. But when I put my hand in the cage, and Tim's pretty wings did not meet my finger, or his small pointed claws take hold of my finger, I knew that I should never see my sweet little singer again. End of chapter 8. We are 
reading The Story of My Life by Helen Keller. Beginning chapter 9, on page 29. Chapter 9. The next important event in my life was my visit to Boston in May 1888. As if it were yesterday, I remember the preparation, the departure, with my teacher and my mother, the journey, and final arrival in Boston. How different this journey was from the one that I had made to Baltimore just two years before. I was no longer a restless, excitable little creature, requiring the attention of everybody on the train to keep me occupied. I sat quietly beside Miss Sullivan, taking in with eager interest all that she had told me about what she saw out of the car windows. The beautiful Tennessee River, the great cotton fields, the hills and woods, and the crowds of laughing negroes at the station, who waved to the people on the train, and brought delicious candy and popcorn balls through the car. On the seat opposite me sat my big rag doll, Nancy, in a new gingham dress and a beruffled sunbonnet, looking at me out of two bead eyes. Sometimes, when I was not absorbed in Miss Sullivan's descriptions, I remembered Nancy's existence and took her up in my arms, but I generally calmed my conscience by making myself believe that she was asleep. As I shall not have occasion to refer to Nancy again, I wish to tell her a sad experience that she had soon after our arrival in Boston. She was covered with dirt, the remains of mud pies I had compelled her to eat, although she had never shown any special liking for them. The laundress at the Perkins Institution secretly carried her off to give her a bath. This was too much for poor Nancy. When I saw her next, she was a form heap formless heap of a cotton which should not have recognized at all except for the two bead eyes which looked down at me reproachfully when the train at last pulled into the station at boston it was as if a beautiful fairy tale had come true though once upon a time was now and the faraway country was here we had scarcely arrived at the perkins institution for the blind when i had begun to make friends with the little blind children it delighted me inexpressibly to find that they knew the manual alphabet. What joy to talk to other children in my own language. Until then I had been like a foreigner, speaking through an interpreter. In the school where Laura Bridgman was taught, I was my in my own country. It took me some time to appreciate the fact that my new friends were blind. I knew I could not see, but it didn't seem possible that all of the eager, loving children who gathered round me and joined heartedly in my frolics were also blind. I remember the surprise and the pain that I felt as I noticed that they placed their hands over mine when I talked to them, that they read books with their fingers. Although I had been told this before, and although I understood my own deprivations, yet I had thought vaguely that since I could hear, or since they could hear, they must sort of have a second sight and I was not prepared to find one child and another, and yet another deprived of the same precious gift. But they were so happy and contented that I lost all sense of pain in the pleasure of their companionship. One day spent with the blind children made me feel th thoroughly at home in my new environment, and I looked eagerly from one pleasant experience to another as the days flew swiftly by. I could not quite convince myself that there was much word world left, for I regarded Boston as the beginning and end of creation. While we were in Boston, we visited Bunker Hill, and there I had my first lesson in history. 
The story of the brave men who had fought on the spot where we had stood excited me greatly. I climbed the monument, counting the steps, and wondering as I went higher and higher if the shoulder soldiers had climbed this great stairway and shot the enemy on the ground below. The next day we went to Plymouth by water. This was my first trip on the ocean and my first voyage in the steamboat. How full of life and motion it was. But the rumble of the machinery made me think it was thundering, and I began to cry because I feared if it rained we should not be able to have our picnic outdoors. I was more interested, I think, in the great rock on which the pilgrims landed than anything else in Plymouth. I could touch it, and perhaps that made the coming of the pilgrims and their toils and great deeds seem more real to me. I have often held in my hand a little model of the Plymouth Rock, which was a kind of gent which a kind gentleman gave me at Pilgrim Hall, and I have fingered its curves, the split in the center, and the embossed figures sixteen twenty, and turned over in my mind all that I knew about the wonderful story of the pilgrims. How my childish imagination glowed with the splendor of their enterprise. I idealized them as the bravest and most generous men that ever sought a home in a strange land. I thought that they desired the freedom of their fellow men as well as their own. I was keenly surprised and disappointed years later to learn of their acts and persecution that made us tingle with shame, even while we glory in the courage and energy that gave us our country beautiful. Among the many friends I made in Boston were Mr. William Endicott and his daughter. Their kindness to me was the seed from which many pleasant memories have since grown. One day we visited their beautiful home at Beverly Farms. I remember with delight how I went through their rose garden, how their dogs, Big Leo and little curly-haired Fritz, with long ears, came to meet me, and how Nimrod, the swiftest of the horses, poked his nose into my hand for a pat and a lump of sugar. I also remember the beach, where the first time I played in the sand. It was hard, smooth sand, very different from the loose, sharp sand mingled with kelp and shells at Brewster. Mr. Endicott told me about the great ships that came sailing by from Boston, bound for Europe. I saw him many times after that. He was always a good friend to me, indeed. I was thinking of him when I called Boston the kind, the city of kind hearts.